Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's The Wonky Show. It's a special edition this week. We're asking how we maintain our emotional and mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. We process the events of the week just gone. We've got top tips for staying healthy while working or studying at home. And we think about what universities and government should be doing to help. It's all coming up. Yes, I mean, I suppose at the moment people people are working on a day-to-day kind of motivation and, and it's quite easy to tick things off a checklist and, and keep your motivation going that way. But we, we know from a lot of models of motivation, psychological models of motivation. Welcome to The Monkey Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Debbie McVitie, and what a week it's been, not just for universities, but for the whole country. New modelling of the spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus in the UK from scientists at Imperial College London has led to a ramping up of restrictions to try to slow the rates of infection and keep people safe. But besides all the practical challenges for university staff and students in coping with the new world order, it's been a really difficult week for all of us, emotionally and mentally. We've had to adjust to new ways of working and studying, updated government guidance every few days, and enormous uncertainty, as we don't know how long all this will last or what the consequences might be. For those of us who are ill or vulnerable, or who have loved ones at risk, it's an even greater struggle. So this week's podcast is a special edition, focusing on maintaining our emotional and mental health and well-being during this pandemic, and what individuals, organisations and government can do at scale to help. And to help us through that, as usual, we have two amazing guests. In the UUK spoke in Brixton, we have John Dupuri, Assistant Director of Policy at Universities UK. John, I won't ask for your highlight of the week, but can you give us a reason to be cheerful? Yes, Debbie, th- thanks um, for the introduction and for, for inviting me on. Um, I-, I think my reason to be cheerful at the moment is the way that um, people at all levels in institutions are sort of working ferociously and pulling together to respond to the national crisis and already thinking about not just how universities respond for themselves and their populations, but how we can also give to the national effort. Um, So I'm just, you know, I'm really proud of our sector for the work that's already being done to support the NHS communities and the nation in this. Thanks, John. And in Queen's Park, London, we have Fran Longstaff, Head of Psychology at FICA. Fran, what's your reason to be cheerful this week? Yeah, I think uh, I think my reason to be cheerful is, you know, just observing um, the way that colleagues at, at different universities are, you know, working really hard uh, with this situation, but also the the kind of um, the laughter that they're maintaining through this as well. The the kind of there's a there's a real kind of bond and, and coming together there that's really really nice to see. So. In the space of a week, most UK universities have moved all their teaching online. Uh, Staff and students are self-isolating in some cases, and some have been confirmed as testing positive for COVID-19. 
just to recap on the week, uh, on Monday evening, the government updated public health guidance, advising social distancing, cancelling non-essential travel and saying that anyone who can work from home should. Then on Thursday, the government announced that schools and nurseries will close and that summer exams will be cancelled. There have been widespread reports of panic buying and stockpiling. Large parts of the economy are in jeopardy and people are really concerned for their families and for their freedoms. John, how's all this felt uh, as, as we've watched the week unfold? I mean, I think it's incredibly frightening. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, a rational response to the pace of change and the depth of the crisis that we're facing. And we're facing it as a nation, as, as, as we're told and as we understand, but we're also really facing it as individuals, as families, and of course, um, as education settings. But the pressures on staff in particular at the moment, as well as students and, uh, and their parents, are enormous. I think um, people are pulling 16, 18-hour days. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think I think it's fierce at the moment. Um, and uh, credit to the to the people in institutions who are responding in that way. Well, I think. I think any time there's uncertainty, um, I mean, uncertainty is one of our biggest stressors, you know, sources of stress. And we can definitely feel this. Um, we can, um, I suppose what we're seeing in, in universities is they're trying to um, work within all the things that they don't know. Um, and I think that they're doing a really good job. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fear there about even, even what the sector might look like. Um, in the next six months, a lot of fear about what will happen for recruitment in in September, October. Um, yeah, lots of unknowns that that's causing a lot of anxiety. Are there particular groups of students? One, I mean, one or, or indeed staff, because one of the things, of course, is that. Um everyone's going to be impacted in a slightly different way. You know, some people are living in a flat with, you know, lots of housemates and some people have, you know, homes with gardens and, um, you know, some people are doing uh, the sorts of jobs that, you know, really require them to show up and be present and some people are, are able to work remotely. So, you know, which which groups of students and staff do we think are um, particularly going to be affected and, and in what ways, John? So, I, I, I mean, I think we could spend a lot of time describing different groups, but clearly we understand that international students were one of the first groups to be affected uh, by the uh, by the, by the, by the pandemic as it as it spread out across the world, um, but but equally um, uh, estranged students, those with caring responsibilities for um, the vulnerable categories, uh, and those of course are the older or those with um, chronic uh, long term illness um, involving immunosuppression. I think also clearly there are groups of staff who one might call uh, core staff, uh, and those would obviously be staff who are involved uh, in the support of students uh, and and the support of staff, but also core staff who are there uh, keeping some hard to close functions open and those might be laboratories that are needed for the national interest or they might be laboratories that are difficult to shut down for other reasons um, they would also include some of the core staff who are uh, involved in the day-to-day week-on-week administration of universities you know from from the leadership teams through to security teams and so on so I think there are particular pressures on them but although we can single out particular groups who are being impacted in different ways on this. This really runs across the entire university community. Um, and uh, I, you know, I think we need to recognize that, that there's that global impact 
and then pick off targeted support uh, for for those with particular needs. Um, in terms of, uh, I guess, sort of emotional health and well-being, this is this is a really distinctive situation, isn't it, Fran? Because you know, sometimes you know, you, you we, we often we often talk about about mental health at the individual level, about individuals going through things, you know, perhaps you know, building to a crisis point. But of course, you know, this is this is the entire of society perhaps having a kind of a, an, a, a, you know a challenging emotional experience all at the same time. Um, you know, how does that how does that work in psychological terms? Yeah, it's 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 going to be a really tricky time for a lot of people because if we almost think of it as our our psychological nutrients. Um, we're, we're going to be running a little bit lower on some of those, some of those kind of things that we really need as, as people. Um, there's no replacement really for first to first human connection. Um, so we know that, you know, people may well struggle with that and they'll have to find alternatives, uh, for that. Um, we know, I mean, you mentioned before about students living in, in cramped house shares, you know, that's, that's going to bring up its own problems as well. You know, we, we need, we need our own time as well. That's a, that's a core psychological nutrient for us. It's something we really need. Um, it's actually called hyper core presence when you're living on top of people. It's incredibly stressful. Um, especially given that, you know, there's been surveys where people ask, uh, people have been asked, you know, what, what's your most relaxing pastime? And, and, uh, the, the overwhelming response was to, to be able to spend time on your own. Um, so, so if you're not able to have that, that's going to cause problems. Um, and I think also, um, you know, other, other kind of difficulties that we might face is, is kind of not being able to spend as much time outside in, in, in nature. You know, that is one of our biggest psychological nutrients. It's, it's being found to reduce stress, improve mood. So these are all things that people are going to, going to be coping with over the, well, indefinitely the next, the next few months. I guess if I was going to give any advice, um, which I, you know, I tend to try not to do, um, but, the being able to control the things that you have control of that that's the only place that you can really start uh, and and the uncertainties they're almost things that um things like mindfulness and acceptance techniques are actually really useful in those instances because until until you have something that resembles a you know a solid fact a solid bit of evidence to work with you can really spiral very quickly into what if thinking rumination and and that can be really problematic for people I think it's really interesting and uh, and uh, uh, really um, thank you, Fran, for, for suggesting that key element of kind of uh, resting on what you can influence in your individual circumstance. But, but what's really interesting here as well is that we're getting into uncharted territory because this is, a, a, as you signaled, a collective challenge around uh, uncertain future. And, you know, there have been other situations around the world in, in, in disasters and emergencies where similar collective challenges have been faced and endured. And I, and I think that as well as that individual psychological response, we, we must be thinking about the collective psychological response as well um, and, and kind of borrowing from the best evidence on that. And I'm really pleased to see that the mental health research community is stepping up and looking at um, kind of convening evidence and actually indeed conducting research about the best ways to respond collectively as well as individually to this. Because I think this will have repercussions across the full spectrum of our mental health, um, every individual, every family, every every community, but it but it will also involve some severe repercussions for um, 
those who are already facing mental health difficulties. Um, and, and I think we're actually, we're actually we're already starting to see some signs of that in our community as well. Right. All week on the site, we have had contributions from across the Wonky community on uh, the impact of the COVID-19 coronavirus. So let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Debbie Holly, Professor of Learning Innovation at Bournemouth University and a National Teaching Fellow. My article, Remote Learning Means We Need to Radically Rethink Assessment, is really trying to help us consider the exceptional circumstances we find ourselves in and focusing on our students and their learning experiences. I'm filled with horror as institution after institution's first response is to push learners, both academics and students, online and replacing like with like, you know, making an online huge lecture from a face-to-face lecture and all of the stresses of moving our practice on. Synchronous learning, real-time learning, is not necessarily the optimal option. Take a student who may be at home with two school-aged children, a noisy dog, no private study space and flaky Wi-Fi. You know, something much more measured, bite-sized, would probably meet their learning needs much, much better. My article suggests some straightforward solutions to take off the pressure. By looking at alternative assessments, we can align our teaching, learning and assessment practice in a meaningful way. Indeed, we can do exactly what John Biggs advocated and constructively align our practices. My name is Simon Horrocks. I'm currently an independent consultant, but I was previously with Edinburgh University and the OU. My piece this week is about the role of university comms teams in responding to COVID-19. Like many parts of universities, these teams are under a lot of pressure right now. And I was interested to look last weekend at how these teams were using social media channels to communicate and engage with their audiences. Some teams did an absolutely fantastic job. And towards the end of the piece, I give some tips about how university teams, comms teams, can use these channels well in these difficult times. Now, next up, although not everyone can work from home, it's now expected that those who can should. Teaching staff are delivering teaching remotely and students are learning remotely. Families and groups who are in self-isolation are restricted in their movements. And for many, this change in practice will come as a shock to the system. Yeah, I mean, this this will be a really interesting time for a lot of students because um, there are a lot, often a lot of um, external structures in place at universities that, that really help with motivation. Um, and this will be an interesting time because it'll be, it'll be really, um, really within their control and, and their ownership now. But um, simple things uh, to men, maintain motivation really would be to try and maintain some form of routine. Um, so there's a crazy, uh, it's some, some wild statistic that something like 80% of young professionals admit to working at home in bed. That's really not a good thing to be doing uh, if you're a student um, because it really kind of messes up that association between the bed and, and, and what it's for essentially. Um Getting dressed is a is a big thing as well. Setting daily goals really important, um, and also setting um, time to connect with peers. We we know from vast amounts of research that peers, you know, course mates, friends from university, often the first point of call, um, and and huge sources of motivation. So setting aside kind of daily times where they can catch up as a group would be really important. Um, we know that if we share our goals with a friend, we're more likely to do them as well. So it can be a useful exercise to start the day where, where people might, might share what, what they're going to be getting done um, that day. Um, 
And as well, you know, maintaining some level of physical activity is, a, you know, it's a huge factor as well for motivation. So uh, I know lots of universities have acted very quickly and have, have offered resources. Um, John, John was telling me earlier that um, his daughter's PE teacher as well has put together a kind of online resource where she can do kind of dance at, at home. And I think I think these things are really important to, in, in many ways, maintain a sense of momentum. Um, it's a lot easier to keep that that boulder moving rather than it stop and have to have to start trying to really put a lot of effort into moving that. So, so they would be my my uh, recommendations for sure. And I can definitely share those dance videos if you'd, uh, <laughs> yeah. if everyone would like to join in. I, I I had a couple of other points to add to that, and uh, and one is that really important point about physical activity and. And Fran's quite rightly pointed at the link between physical and, and mental health. Um, uh, and just to note that uh, Professor Chris Whitty has strongly advised that we keep our physical health uh, going as well during this period. And although it may feel like we have to stay in our houses and flats and accommodation, actually he's encouraging us to get out and get into the parks and still practice the physical distancing of, of two, two meters and so on, but to get out and to run or to walk or, or what, whatever physical activity seems appropriate. So that, that's the first thing. I actually really like starting a, a work from home day with something like a walk to work, which might just be round the block locally. Um, cause it does, it does give that break into the work. And the other point, which I, I'm, I'm shamelessly stealing from friends and colleagues at the, at the Welcome Trust, they've appointed a head of office silliness for this period uh, to do to kind of suggest stupid games and activities um, to keep people going and to keep um, that social interaction going that isn't all about serious stuff. Um, you know, what a fantastic place to work apart from anything else, um, as they're demonstrating now. But also what a great idea to kind of keep those other aspects of our work interactions going. Well, I wonder, I wonder if kind of students students might be rather ahead of the curve on some of this, because, of course, uh, lots of students are very used to taking part in online activity. So, I mean, just looking at some of the things that student unions have been doing this week, um, we've had virtual pub quizzes, um, uh, virtual kind of get togethers. So, there's you know, there's, there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. Um, I wonder whether, I mean, John, a lot of university staff are perhaps used to kind of self-motivating and working and working kind of reasonably flexibly. Um, is there a risk perhaps that, uh, you know, some, some, some university staff may not notice uh, the kind of building sense of isolation and, and, and they may need to be a bit more proactive about making sure that that sense of connection is maintained? I think that's a really good point, Debbie. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we've been looking at um, in increasing detail, even before the crisis hit, was the question of how to support, in particular, early researchers, early career researchers, uh, and and postgraduate research students. Um, we know that um, a lot of early career research is is really done in isolation, um, and that there are particular stresses uh, and risks associated with that. So I think you know. I would class PGR students as a as a group who are, we're encouraging our members really to um, have a particular focus on during this period. Um, uh, I think they they anyway have those risks of of isolation, um, very often kind of uh, long working hours, um, and a blurring of lines between. You know, commitment to their subject uh, and what constitutes good working practice as well. 
I think that's a really, really interesting um, point there, John, about the the blurring of of boundaries, because um, anecdotally, I'm hearing from quite a lot of uh, colleagues and friends that because they're working from home, they're... um, they're actually struggling to switch the laptop off at the end of a working day. So it's it's not just an issue necessarily with motivation. It can be an issue with um, taking time for yourself as well. Those study breaks that often we would have just purely from the, the nature of the, the working day at a university when you're within that structure. So I think that's something to be really mindful of as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I would really, really agree, Fran. I, I think, you, you know, I'd venture to say that anyway, academic cultures are unclear about that distinction uh, and uh, you know and it's let's say it's not rare that i will get emails from senior academics um you know late into the night sometimes early hours of the morning um uh, and uh, so i think you know let, let's now that we're all doing this and we're all going to be doing it for a period let, let's use it to keep an eye on each other and and our working practices and and perhaps encourage some different approaches to this as we emerge from the tunnel in in six or 12 months time this is what i was going to ask actually john so you know is is there an opportunity here to perhaps reflect on some of our um some i mean and some of this might be really practical stuff about you know perhaps moving more for, you know away from paper <laughs> for example is is a sort of as it's going to be a, a a necessity as as we all kind of as we work remotely but are there kind of positive things that we could learn about how to work um, efficiently and effectively during this time that that we could then bring back when we're at, when we're all sort of uh, interacting with each other once again uh, I, you know I, absolutely yes debbie um uh, i think um you know, we're, we're, uh, in my discussions with um, senior leadership in universities, in in our discussions across the UK team, you know, we've had to do a kind of radical uh, prioritisation process at pace um, in the last week or two weeks, um, mm. and you 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 strip out stuff, um, and as as you work on the priorities, you understand that your way of working and 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 the themes that you're working on, uh, you, you know, you're you're doing a constant uh, prioritization and and recalibration as you're going along at the moment, and I I think so. I don't doubt that there will be learning from this. I think the question is how to kind of capture it and embed it. Um, and I'm really pleased that, um, for example, JISC and others are stepping up into this space and, uh, you know, s- supporting the move to remote working, supporting the, uh, the digital platforms that are needed for that. Um, there's a similar process going on actually in healthcare at the moment and in the NHS where, you know, quite properly, uh, GPs are moving to telephone or Skype triage. Um, but this has been quite uncharted territory for them as well. And, uh, you know, again, it's great to see senior researchers uh, and Professor Tricia Greenhalgh at, at Oxford springs to mind, stepping in and supporting them with the best evidence on how to do this, how to diagnose effectively um, at distance and so on. I, I, I don't doubt that there will be similar focus and learning uh, in our sector as well. Right. At the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, I spoke to Lisa Bayliss-Pratt, Pro-Vice-Chancellor at Coventry University and former Chief Nurse at Health Education England. We talked about coronavirus and university's role in keeping staff and students healthy. I started by asking her how public thinking and mental health has changed in the last five years and how mental health has moved from the margins to the mainstream. 
Well, I think that um, mental health has always been an issue. It's just that the profile and the status and, and the stigma around it, I think, has, has been uh, very much, you know, let's not talk about this issue. Um, let's just park it somewhere. Whereas over the last five years, I think we've had high profile figures um, in all sectors um, speak up about their own mental health or the mental health of their loved one. And uh, I think that really started uh, a social movement and more curiosity amongst amongst um, you know people in communities to think about it in a slightly different way and as a result more people are talking about it therefore more people want to know how to manage it um, they're accessing services that are trying to catch up with I think this changing mindset around mental health you know mental health and physical health are connected and and services that uh, do well are those services that look after the whole person and, and take the person holistically into account uh, when they've got some kind of a health issue. So I, I think we're on a journey um, and I'm really pleased that we are talking about mental health and we and we aren't keeping it hidden away as some as some secret that uh, you know we don't mention very often. Um, and, and as a result I think that there's lots of work to do and we'll we'll learn lots more about what other problems are. Um, before we'll get to know what all of the solutions are with this agenda. That's really interesting um, when you talk about being, you know, treating the whole person and being conscious of the whole person, because I suppose that trend in, um, in public health is actually replicating itself to some extent in education as, as we think about the, all the kind of diverse needs that, that students might, might have as whole people rather than as sort of learning minds. Um, and that, and so, it, so, it, so it absolutely translates. Um, one of the things that's happening right now is, uh, you know, we're recording this um, at what looks to be the beginnings of um, a really difficult time for public health, because of course, we're, we're just beginning to, to kind of consider the implications of, a, of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, you know, is there a risk, I suppose, that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the good work that's going on around, around health and well-being becomes, uh, you know, will, 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 this, will this help that or, or will it hinder it? Well, I think I think the thing is um, with with the coronavirus, it's it's ever more important to think about people's health and well being, and really put the focus on how people are, um, you know, exercising, how they're eating well, how they're getting plenty of sleep, how they're finding ways to connect. Because we know that when people are lonely and when people are not connected and don't feel like they belong, this affects their mental health, which in turn affects their physical health and vice versa. So, if anything, I think this is a really wonderful opportunity in a strange way to continue to raise the profile of how do you keep well how do we build resilience how do we connect in lots of different ways um, in order to get through this uh, so so I think there is that real focus and there's lots of media interest around how do you keep well and, and how do you keep yourself in a good position so that if you do get the virus um, you've got a, you know you've got a really good opportunity of, of recovering from it um, so in a way I think the coronavirus gives us that further emphasis to say are you eating well are you sleeping um, are you getting outside how are you communicating with your loved ones if indeed they're, they're self-isolating um, what what mechanisms are you using to keep in touch and I think when we get to the other side of this we'll have learned lots of lessons 
about how to continue to educate our students from a distance, how to use technology um, in, a, in a really meaningful way to keep those connections and hopefully how people really think about you know simple stuff like trying to eat well and, and washing their hands and finding ways to connect with each other um, when they can't just uh, see each other face to face because of this situation. So this um this this approach you're describing, the kind of I guess the the whole person approach that I guess takes account of how people's behaviours and 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 their kind of mental state might affect um, how they perceive the world and how they kind of how they engage and experience experience the world. How are you kind of feeding that into your thinking around health and wellbeing as you develop your strategy at Coventry? Yeah, well, I think I think we are absolutely looking at it as a whole system approach, and um, we're really really wanting to make the links between. Uh, physical health and mental health prevention um, and that whole agenda around how do you look at this in, in a holistic in a holistic sort of fashion really. Um, we really think there are some important pillars that we're currently developing work streams around so um, we really recognise that you need to have strong leadership around this agenda and, and I'm delighted as a senior leader that I've got the lead for this. I think that shows a commitment um, from the organisation. Uh, we're really keen to explore how we can put in uh, lots of prevention activities. So we start to shift the dial from, you know, treatment um, to early intervention and prevention. So how do we really build meaningful initiatives um, and interventions to help people keep as well as they can or live well with an existing condition that they've already come to us with um, when they come to the university? We're exploring support and um, looking at different types of support mechanisms. And, you know, there's some really interesting stuff around around work-based um, compassion and how do you create a compassionate workforce? How do, you, how do you do lots of little things in an effective way that help keep people feeling as well as they possibly can do? Um, we're really strong on partnerships at this university and uh, we're really joining up with the people that we work for to make sure that when people you know, do need to access um, maybe a mental health service, we've got the right mechanisms in place and people are aware when it is right to move into into that space and working with, I mean, for Coventry University, we've got the City of Culture in 2021. Um, this in, in Coventry City, there was a year of wellbeing last year led by the council. So there's lots of work that we're, we're doing with them and learning from by being part of that agenda, sharing that with our other campuses in London and Scarborough and exploring um, elsewhere how we can, how we can utilise the things that we've learned. And then the other area for us is around data and actually understanding what the relationships are between student satisfaction and health and wellbeing interventions and you know trying to understand how people are feeling and, and whether you can you can relate that to particular data sets uh, to help us really understand where the challenges are where the opportunities are and where actually we're making a real difference so if we've got particular schools or faculties that, that are really engaged in this agenda, we're starting to ask the question, so what impact is that having? Can you see the difference that this is making on your students, you know, to to really enable them to be as best as they can, to have that cutting edge and to be really driven um, to be the very best that they possibly can? So those are the sort of areas of activity 
that we're building the framework around. And, and I'm delighted to say that, you know, there's lots of energy and enthusiasm, not only within this um, organisation, but also across the sector, uh, as, as, as I know you all know. But I really think we're at that stage now where we're trying to, you know, not just grapple with something that can be quite difficult, but really deeply understand, okay, how do we manage this? What are the best interventions that we can possibly develop? Um, and how can we do this? across our whole system and not just have piecemeal activities or respond um, to people when they're poorly. How do we help keep people to keep well and recognise when they're not so well that we can put interventions in place to stop them from getting um, even more sicker? Now, finally, this week, universities are dealing with numerous practical issues of the pandemic, from modelling the financial implications of a loss of international student income, transitioning teaching and services online, planning for changes to assessments and safeguarding students on placements, especially those on health courses. But amongst all these practical concerns, there's also a duty of care to the physical and mental well-being of staff and students. And of course, those in charge need to take seriously their own duty of self-care and try to manage the risk of burnout, especially as we don't know how long all of this will carry on for. John, can you give us a peek behind the scenes at Universities UK? How are universities managing these issues and what are the issues that they're raising with you? So, so thank you, Debbie. I, th I mean, this, this has had a huge impact across everything that we do, uh, just as it's had a huge impact across everything our members do. And um, our response, um, which is to understand the impact, uh, immediate, medium term, long term, and then to focus on uh, mitigation uh, of that impact, um, has really now devolved from... Uh, you know, uh, 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 an immediate COVID response group uh, into separate work strands. And you could imagine uh, that those would uh, would have covered in the first instance um, international students and implications, financial implications, regulatory and standard uh, uh, impacts. Uh, and then also this uh, question that we spoke about already around domestic admissions as well. But key in those five strands is... Um, actually really framed as, a, as an overarching strand as well is the question of student and staff welfare and well-being um, and and I think uh, that that has really in the way that institutions and students and staff have responded to this and our leadership has been the priority um, it's certainly in my conversations with vice chancellors and senior teams their first focus is students and staff and I would say it goes beyond a duty of care, Debbie. Um, I, I think this is understanding that students and staff are the core of the university and that their safety, health and well-being is the priority during this crisis. Fran, one of the, you know, the, the, the work that's been going on um, in, in recent years in universities has been to try and shift a sort of crisis response approach to mental health to a much more kind of whole campus preventative, uh, you know, development of, of, of healthy uh, emotional resilience and, and, and those sorts of habits. Can, can this work continue uh, in, in a crisis and, and what might that look like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I think uh, students as a, as a whole are becoming a lot more aware of, you know, what are the things that are good for them psychologically and they're um, really aware of the things that they need to do in order to maintain good psychological um you know, help, um, health rather, sorry. Um, and I think, I think that can absolutely continue because I think it's important to remember in, in maintaining psychological well-being, um, 
just five minutes a day of even just reflecting on something that you're grateful for, for example, is a route to doing that. So it's not that the the world of proactive psychological health would stop because of this. There are things that can easily be weaved into a student and staff member's day um, to maintain maintain that, that psychological health. Um, and things like, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking now with tech, you know, there are online communities that you can join, get involved with. And, and I think the universities will also respond very quickly with their, their own provisions as well. Um, just keep people connected and, and keep those positive, healthy, healthy habits going. And are there things are there things that universities can do to promote that, I suppose, you know, uh, be, you know beyond sort of recommending it to, to individuals? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of, um, it's, it's really heartening, actually. I'm tuned into a lot of universities and their comms teams are, they're, they're in overdrive. You know, they're, they're putting out constantly, why not try this, uh, bit of activity or, or this thing? And, and it's really good to see that they're, they're actively, um, supporting the, the student body with, with all the things that are good for them. It, it's probably worth me adding, Debbie and Fran, that, um, uh, you know, there's obviously been uh, an announcement uh, uh, this week on um, supporting core workforce um, across the UK, uh, and uh, universities have been proactive in this um, and really thought about, uh, you know, as, as we've moved to remote uh, working and remote learning across many of our institutions and by the way thank you very much to to Wonky and to David Kay for that amazing mapping exercise that you're doing on that it's incredibly helpful for us uh, but as as we've made that move um we we've very much focused on what core staff do need to be um still at work whether whether actually on site or 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 um uh, at, at, at distance and clearly student support staff and staff support are core staff uh, there'll be other categories as well it's worth noting also that we're trying to get uh, at, uh, at speed a clarification with the cabinet office about whether um, they have included these groups of staff uh, in their in their wide definition of educational staff uh, and we'll be pressing for that because it is quite possible as we go into further lockdown with potential travel restrictions that we will need to show exemption and in, in order to to go to work and and to do those core functions so 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 that's the first point i think there's another question here which is does the strategic approach continue? Which is, you know, again, if we think about what step change set out and what the Student Minds Mental Health Charter elaborated, which is this whole university approach to mental health slash health as an enabler of everything we do. I think, you know, obviously in the crisis response, this first phase, everything else is put aside. But this strategic response, and we're all, I'm already hearing from leaders on this, it is if anything, it, it's it, how essential it is, is being re reinforced at the moment. Universities are galvanizing themselves along with the nation to think about safety, health and well-being. Uh, and that's very much the messaging in the whole university approach. So I think both the kind of individual psychological supports that Fram was talking about, the maintaining of core services and support for students and staff, but also the strategic approach are all continuing through the crisis as, as they should. 
And there's been some quite good examples this week, hasn't there, of, of uh, vice chancellors sticking to the airwaves to kind of offer reassurance to staff and, and kind of sh- and show leadership and, and, and put that uh, well-being at the kind of centre of, of how they're thinking right now. John, if you've got some sort of good examples, you can kind of point us to Well, I think there are examples of that. And I would I'd very much expect our, our senior leadership to do that. But uh, um and, and I can think of, you know, there are many examples where vice chancellors have done, for example, uh, interviews with um, senior local general practitioners to really kind of uh, uh, bring home some of the key public health advice uh, for students and staff. But actually where, where I'm, I mean, also where I'm really interested to see this is in the communities that are building across our students um, and staff um, and uh, Rosie Tressler from Student Minds has been kind of signalling and supporting some of the work that uh, students and students unions are doing to uh, really pull together in the face of the crisis to share good public health information and support at the moment. So I, I think there are there are lots of examples of that across all parts of the university community. And is there anything that government needs to do to support those efforts or to kind of give clarity on issues that um, really could do with being resolved? Yes, I, I mean, I think that, that we're in a, a very close um, uh, and, and, and very constructive discussion with, um, with government um, and obviously particularly with the Department for Education, but, but um, housing local government uh, 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 and communities as well. Uh, and the Department for Health. And I think, uh, you know, keeping those close discussions going is the first uh, rule of constructive uh, um, policy making uh, that doesn't have unintended consequences. Um, and so, for example, I've already signalled uh, that we're working hard on a clarification of what constitutes core workforce from the cabinet office but there are there are multiple other engagements as you might imagine Debbie around for example clarifying rules on for, uh, with the home office on immigration uh, so as uh, for international students and staff who are unable to go home um, and 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 you know that really big and an important piece of work on um, deploying third year health students uh, onto an emergency register um, so that they can support the NHS at this critical time. You know, this is really significant work and huge credit to um, uh, to the NHS, to the regulators and to universities led uh, and mobilised by the Council of Deans of Health uh, to, to, to achieve this. But there will be lots of implications to work through with that, both in terms of the safety and proper induction of those students, but also in terms of return to education, how they qualify, how they graduate and so on. Um, so kind of, you know, close working with government is at the core of, make, I mean, government are also working at huge pace and 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 making decisions that respond to the situation as it changes um and we absolutely recognize that and and we're grateful to them for keeping us very close in any discussions about he and and populations in higher education and fran in terms of messaging do you feel like the um the, the approach of politicians has been uh exemplary best practice in terms of supporting the kind of well-being and he- emotional health of the nation um, That's not a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, actually, I think I think um, you know I'm I'm a big fan of Chris Whitty. I think I think he he's done a really good job of of keeping that at the forefront of people's minds. Um, so I think he's you know I think it's definitely something that um, 
on the basis of that messaging that's coming out, people are really aware of it. And then you can see that that's cascading through all of the, the social media, uh, news, etc. It's really at the forefront front now of, of people's minds to make sure that, hang on, my life has changed. The structure's changed rapidly. What things do I need to do to to make sure that I'm I'm psychologically and and mentally fit? There's, I think there's a really interesting role for um, universities and academics at the moment, which is that we have a we have a wash of. Um, Fake news, uh, uh, as a result. I mean, you know, of all kinds. Um, that 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 includes, um, you know, f- uh, for example, phishing attempts based on um, COVID uh, nineteen worries, right the way through to uh, reports of, um, uh, you know, Russian bot factories trying to stir up um, to, to to destroy social cohesion at the moment. So, um, I I I think we need to read reports with care and uh, uh you know i think our senior academics um need to be part of that uh, and, and I, I was very struck recently by an excellent uh, piece in the conversation about how to read uh, the science behind the current crisis um and how to distinguish the fake or or the tendentious from the real in this I, I just also wanted to come in behind what fran said and say that i think chris witty and patrick valance have been exceptional in this as have the team at imperial but a much wider constituency of researchers across many institutions and many disciplines who are focusing on this constructively and that includes voices in opposition to the main strand of policy because we do need to keep checking the models we do need to keep understanding about necessary changes in policy um, uh, as those come out and france so obviously everyone uh, is going to be quite motivated in the first couple of weeks because you know we're all having to be really conscious about the changes that we're making in our lifestyles but um are there things that people can do uh, to prepare for the prepare for the long haul you know if if this uh, if these restrictions last for kind of mon- uh, months months yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, yes, I mean, I suppose at the moment people people are working on a day-to-day kind of motivation and, and it's quite easy to tick things off a checklist and, and keep your motivation going that way. But we, we know from a lot of models of motivation, psychological models of motivation, that um, a sense of purpose and... Um, really knowing what your your values are as a person is is really key to keeping any kind of longer term motivation going so i think at some point it's it's really important to to check in with yourself and say you know what what are my values as a person what do i value and what's my purpose um and and make that clear for yourself because that really will be the uh, the fuel that keeps that motivational fire going um if you're looking at months of of kind of doing doing your work on your own for example so i think i think that's a really useful thing to do to to just take stock of what am i about as a person who do i want to be what do i want to be and then and then that can be really useful fuel um but they're they're big questions to ask yourself um so also also questions aren't they that really inform how universities are responding absolutely sort of understanding what we're for and who we're for um you know for our populations but also for the communities around mm. and i think that sense of purpose and mission is what's going to get us through this 
Yeah, and I think it's it's really nice you say that because I think the way that the the universities have responded is, I think we said before we, we had this call, it's it's just testament to the the values and and the the belief systems that underpin universities. It's just really great to see. So that's about it for this week. Remember, to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today, you'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. If you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Fran, John and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay healthy. Stay healthy.